listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So, you know, every great movie adds music at certain points to kind of heighten your sense of something big is about to happen, that you're not, under, you're not really sure what's about to happen, but as the music begins to build, you can tell the plot is about to hit its pinnacle. Well, this morning, we are looking at the Gospel of John, and he is very close to the pinnacle of his Gospel. I mean, the music, you can almost feel it. It is starting to build because John 17 makes a massive announcement. Because for the past three years, Jesus and his disciples have been going on an expedition and they are just about to hit the summit. Because think all the way back to John chapter 2. I know it seems like forever ago. It's back in September that we started this series. That when Jesus performed his very first sign, his miracle, he said, hey, my hour, it has not yet come. In John 7 and 8, twice he said, his hour, it's not here yet. In John 12, we finally hear him say, but the hour is coming. Well, John 17, everything has taken place where Jesus can finally say, the hour has arrived. The hour has come. But listen, it's not just any hour that Jesus is looking forward to. Jesus is approaching the hour that the entire world has been anticipating. I mean, it's the final fulfillment of the promise that God made back in Genesis where he said he promised he would send a rescuer. And it's the moment that everything is going to change. So as Jesus is approaching the pinnacle of his life here on earth, the moment that God promised way back, the moment the world is looking forward to, Jesus stops and he prays. I mean, Jesus pauses at the doorway of the cross to take a moment to talk to his Father. And it's only 650 words. You could read it in about three and a half minutes out loud. But I believe it would take us all eternity to fully understand it. And it's because it is impossible to see how important and special this moment right here is. It's just listen even how Martin Luther, when he was thinking about John 17, he said, there is no voice which has ever been heard either in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God Himself. And we get to look at that this morning. In fact, Jesus is going to pray for three things. He's going to pray for Himself, He'll pray for the disciples, and all future believers, meaning the church. And so let's dive in. John chapter 17, and see where Jesus is going to pray for Himself. It begins in verse 1, where Jesus said, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, and here it is, the hour has come. And notice what he prays for. Glorify your son that the son may be glorified in you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. 
And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave to me. So he can finally say the hour has come, speaking of the cross. And he prays that he would be glorified. But not just him, that his father would then be glorified through him. Well, let's stop for a moment and talk about them. What does he even mean by this idea of to be glorified? It's a term we can kind of throw around if we're not careful to understand what it means. Well, the idea of glory as a noun, it means the majesty or the splendor, the, the greatness of something. You know, it seems like a while that we've seen one, but maybe a great sun, a sunset or a sunrise. You know, or it's a family welcoming a child into the world. We've had two families be able to do that in just the past couple of weeks. A person that lived and died with honor. We would say that these were things that have glory, of splendor, greatness in them. But not only that he would be glorified, but that the Father would be glorified through him. And what we're seeing is that there is nothing as great as some moments are that could ever come close to the splendor, the majesty of God. And so as a verb, what it means is then to respond appropriately to that glory. You know, a beautiful sunset. I mean, the appropriate response is to stop and to take it in and stand in awe for a moment. You know, a family that just welcomes a child into the world is not just going to say, oh, that's great, and just kind of move on and go back to work. No, they stop and Men, they cry and they pray and they laugh. It's the appropriate celebration of that glory. So when Jesus says this, he is saying that he wants his goodness, his majesty, his splendor, his greatness to be celebrated appropriately. But when he prays to be glorified, it means all of that would be celebrated and seen by the world. But there's a problem. The problem is the cross. Because you see, the cross is not only an object of, of torture, it's a complete symbol of shame. But you turn to Deuteronomy 21 or Galatians chapter 3, he talks about it, it says, Cursed is anyone that hangs upon a tree. And that's why the Jews were not satisfied with just stoning Jesus. They needed him to hang on a tree to prove to the world that he was cursed. So the problem then is, how is God going to take someone that is seen as cursed and rejected and then somehow, some way, turn it to praise and applause? How will God take a disgraceful and shameful association of the cross and make it a badge of honor? I mean, how can God do that? Well, he says how he's going to in verse 5. It says, and now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Meaning the Father will glorify the Son by restoring him to the position that he had before the foundations of the world. That his goodness and his greatness, it's going to be seen and it's going to be celebrated through the resurrection. And how do we know that? It's because you already see it happening in Revelation chapter 5 verse 12. It says, saying with a loud voice, worthy 
is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor, and there it is, and glory and blessing. Meaning all of heaven cries out about the goodness and the greatness and the splendor and the majesty of Jesus. And then what will happen? Then that will come through God's people here. Meaning when the world sees Jesus as cursed, God's people will see Him worthy. When the world rejects, God's people are to stand up and applaud. Because you think about all the things that you learn about God that you could not know without the cross. Through the cross is where you see how holy God is. You see His love of His holiness and His hatred for sin and His refusal to compromise. You see His love of justice, His his condemnation of sin, even to the point of pouring out His wrath on His own Son who bears the sins. And I think the greatest thing you see is you see there was not anything that God was not willing to endure or to go through to bring you salvation. Just think about it. If Jesus stops short of the cross, if He does everything else but refuses that, He is showing that there is a limit to God's love for you that He is not prepared to go through. So without the cross, we would never know of God's limitless love. So before we see Jesus praying for the disciples, I want you to notice two, I think, important things that He just prays. One is, notice Jesus' explanation of eternal life. You know, I think oftentimes we think about eternity as kind of just endless existence, a, a kind of a, a foreverness that never ends. But notice how Jesus describes eternal life in verse 3. Because he tells you, and this is eternal life. And it's not endless existence that you know the only true God And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So meaning eternal life is to know God forever. I think what he's saying is that each and every moment of eternity will be a constant discovery of something new about who God is. Not just an endless existence, but a forever knowing. Well, the second thing is notice how Jesus longs for eternity in verse 5. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Meaning that Jesus longs for heaven again. He longs to be in the presence of God the Father. Because I think it's easy for us to forget what Jesus had to go through and what he gave up to become a man. Because he's not of this world. He took on our humanity. And I think what happens is that we can tend to look at things with only an earthly perspective. Because we think about his earthly life, and we should. We appreciate his holiness as a man, that he lived a life that we could never live, and we should. I think we can imagine even thinking what it was like to spend those three years with him walk and to learn and experience. But we just never forget what he gave up to take on our humanity. And Jesus longs for that again. 
So we as believers, I think that should be a longing that we have, that there is a longing for the time that we would see him in his full glory. Well, then notice the prayer to the disciples, moving from himself to those around him. Now, I haven't quite figured this out because the other gospels tell us that they're asleep. John is the only one that records the prayer. And maybe John heard him or maybe the Spirit led him to, to know these things. But he turns and he prays for the disciples. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Speaking of the disciples. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. So he recaps really like the last three years that God, these were the ones you gave me. I've taken them and I've taught them and I've protected them. They have come to believe. Well, then he prays for four things. And notice the first one, verse 9 and 10. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, they are yours. All that are yours and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. So notice also the unity and the harmony and the unselfishness between the Trinity, between the Father and the Son. And Jesus' greatness, he says, his glory is going to be made known through the disciples. So notice what the first prayer for them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. Jesus prays that they would remain loyal or committed to the one that is calling him. He knows they're going to be tested. He knows they're going to be tempted to then run back to what is most comfortable and abandon their mission. And Jesus prays that they would remain loyal, that they would remain committed. Well, then beginning in 12, he prays for a second thing. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you had given me. And I have guarded them, meaning Jesus has been shielding them from all of this, but now it is their time. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, speaking of Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Wow, we get to jump deep into that next week. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So he prays for their commitment and he prays for their joy. But he's not praying for a joy from below. He's praying about a joy that has its origins in heaven. Meaning a joy that is not based on what they're going through or what they're experiencing. It's based on the sovereign love of a God that loves them, is committed to their loyalty. And then he prays for their protection. He says, I've given them your name, your word, And the world has hated them. It's their time to step up to the plate. Because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So notice he prays not that they would have the troubles and 
and hostility and dangers and conflict or whatever it might be, that they would be taken from them. He prays that they would be protected through them. Meaning they're not of the world. But for the advancement of the gospel, they must remain. Because when things are difficult and trouble comes and the hostility is beginning to build, when the music is about to hit the pinnacle, they're going to be tempted to withdraw. They're going to be tempted to escape. Listen, I feel that. I mean, when things get out of hand and I don't seem to be in control and everyone in my house is going through something, and what I want to do is pull everybody close, shut all the doors, put all the shades down, and to escape. But I think this is a caution even to believers today. Because if we're not careful, we can become so fearful that we isolate ourselves from those that need to hear the message and the hope of Jesus Christ. Listen, I've been convicted about this this week. Especially when I read Kent Hughes that said, if we're not careful... We can go from the womb to the tomb wrapped in isolated containers, wrapped in fish stickers. Because listen, we love our Christian bubble. Man, if, if we want to shop at certain places, we send our kids to these things, we want to protect them from everything we can and give them the greatest experience of growing up of knowing nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I'll say, yes, that should be the goal. But if we're not careful, we can so isolate ourselves from a world that needs to hear. But the disciples, they're going to be tempted to run from the world. So Jesus prays not for the removal, but he prays for the protection. But then notice their last prayer for them. In verse 17, he says, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. So it's this word that means to be set apart, to kind of be selected out for a certain mission. And the disciples, they've been selected, set apart to be the very first ones to carry the message of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. And when he dies, where do you find them? In the upper room, all gathered together. And I believe that it's the last time you ever see them all together. It's their time to go and to take the message to a lost and dying world. So listen, if you're a believer this morning, be grateful that they did not just stay huddled up in that upper room. Because you know what happened? They finally left. And they shared it with someone. And they believed. And they shared it with their neighbor. And he shared it with his blacksmith. And he shared it with the person that his kids went to school with. And then they shared it with someone else. And then she shared it with the lady she saw at the market. And more and more people heard until it finally came and reached you. So Jesus prays for their loyalty, their joy, their protection, and their mission. But there's one more group that Jesus stops at the foot of the cross to pray for. It's in verse 20. And I do not ask for these only, meaning for the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through your word. So Jesus prays for all that would follow the disciples and believe. 
He prays for the church. And notice what he prays for beginning in verse 21. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you gave, you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. So he prays for unity among believers. But not just any unity, he prays for a supernatural unity. Meaning this, it's a unity that is only possible through God's help. But unity. Notice it's not a uniformity in everything. And I think that's what we can think of. Oh, unity is when everybody does the same thing, comes from the same place, all looks alike, and there's just this commonality, and so there's naturally going to be unity. Listen, unity is not a group of people that have the same backgrounds, that look alike and talk alike, and are just like one another. Why do I believe that? Because the example is the Trinity. Because here's what you have, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. They have perfect unity, but they're also distinct persons. They're not the same in that. And they have different purposes, but they're united in what matters. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are united in their desire and mission to rescue sinners from sin and death. And that's why the Father sent the Son, and then the Son sends the Spirit to come and to bring that message. But hear this. I believe if Jesus feels the need to stop and to pray, I think it shows us that unity is not something that's easy. And I believe it's not something that's natural. It's something that needs the supernatural power of God behind it to fulfill it. But also notice it's not just unity for unity's sake. It's not to get, you, get together and to be united so that we get some star. Because look at verse 23. Notice the desired outcome. I in them and you in me. That's that unity he's speaking of. That they may become and look perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. It's unity so that the world would be able to look upon the church and see something unique. That the world would see a group of people that have many things not in common, but they are united for something far greater and far bigger than just themselves. But I think sadly for many of us, we never get to experience this type of unity. Not because we don't want it, but because we're not willing to put the work in with God's help. We need to know that unity does not happen automatically or easily. It must be worked at, just like in any relationship. But lastly, I want you to see Jesus' final desire for you and me. And it's a beautiful image. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. 
And these things, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may also be in them, and I in them. Meaning, Jesus can't wait for you to see him in all his glory. Man, it's like the little kid that has made the creation that can't wait for their parents to see what they've done. It's like the teenage girl that finally finds the perfect dress that fits right, that makes her feel beautiful, and they can't wait to show it to you. Man, it's like that new couple that welcomes that baby into the world, and they can't wait for those grandparents to hold that child. That Jesus is longing for the day that we will see him and see him in all of his glory. So here's what this means for us today. First of all, think about Jesus praying for himself, that he has this glory, this majesty, this splendor, this greatness, that this world could never even come close to matching. And you see that glory at the cross, where he proved that there was nothing that he wasn't willing to go through to bring you eternal life. So I want to ask you, do you have that complete assurance this morning of eternal life that is only possible through Jesus Christ? And if you do, every single detail of our lives is intended to reveal and and to celebrate that glory. Well, then Jesus prays for his disciples. I mean, on the night Jesus is going to be betrayed. I mean, Jesus or Judas is on the other side of the Mount of Olives just waiting with the troops to bring them over. Or he'll be carried off to stand trial and to be crucified. We're only hours away. And he stops and prays for his disciples, for their loyalty, their joy, protection, and mission. And Jesus didn't pray that they would be removed from the world, but that would be able to stand strong in it. So be grateful this morning that they were willing to do that. Because that mission was taken to someone else, that took it to someone else, that eventually reached you. But now it's our turn. But I think we have another problem. I think many of us have been going and doing this church thing for three years, and maybe five years, or ten years, and it doesn't seem like we're going anywhere. I think the problem is, is that we are keeping and we're doing the same first year over and over. We're just going back and trying it again to see if this thing's going to take. But I want you to know, if you really want to see progression in your life, there are three promises you need to believe. One, you need to believe that you were sent into this world by Jesus, not just to exist but for his purpose and his mission. And then you have to believe that he has given you everything that you need for that. And then you have to believe you know where you're going. But then the problem is, I think that we often live our lives like we haven't been sent. I mean, I'm just trying to survive. I'm just trying to raise a family. I'm just trying to live the best life that I can. And we don't believe that we've actually been sent on a mission. And it's easy to believe that we don't have everything we need. And then oftentimes we don't even know when we're going. Within the third group, he prays for the church. He prays for one thing, that the church would be unified. But unity isn't easy. It it doesn't come natural. 
It is something that we have to work at. That we should strive for a unity that the world would look at and go, that group of people have no business being together. People at different preferences, different hobbies, jobs and backgrounds and skin color and accents. But above all, they have a love and appreciation for one another. And listen, I'm burdened for that. But I've come to realize this. The diversity in a church will only be as diverse as our lives are outside of this. Now, I'm convicted about when every time I look around, it seems like, man, I'm around people that are pretty much just like me. Then am I putting myself in places where I'm getting to know people of different backgrounds and different education levels, different economic statuses, of different skin colors? It is only then that the church begins to look that way. That the church should be a taste of heaven, of every nation, tongue, and tribe. That they have every reason not to be together but you're united under one. Because this unity will only happen as each member is drawing closer to Jesus Christ. Because as each believer draws closer to Jesus Christ, you know what they end up finding? They're drawn closer to one another. It's like a hundred pianos. If you took those hundred pianos and you tuned them to the same tuning fork, do you know what you realize? They're automatically tuned to one another. That they are in one accord by being tuned not to each other, but by being tuned to another standard. That this unity only happens if one piano is tuned to the fork and the other piano is tuned to that fork. Because if you take one piano and tune it, and this piano tunes to that piano, and this one to that one, you'll never create a unity. But when all of those come together, and they are tuned to the one fork, you find out that there is a unity that it can be created. And I think the same is true for the church. If you took a thousand worshipers that came together, each one looking to Christ, they would experience a unity like never before. So this morning, man, we've seen Jesus stop at the foot of the cross and he prays for himself. He prays for the disciples and he prays for the church. Jesus' only request is that His majesty, His goodness, His greatness would be seen and celebrated. And you see that happening in heaven. And that needs to be true of the church and everywhere else we go. And so this morning, we get an opportunity to celebrate His goodness, His majesty, His greatness by seeing that through communion. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.